So good evening and welcome to the Vanuxum lecture, uh, one of a series of public lectures uh, that the university sponsors each year. Uh, it's a really great pleasure to introduce my colleague, friend, Ingrid Dobshi, who um, is currently the director of the program in applied mathematics, for which I'm particularly glad since she took over from me. Um, she was uh, born in Belgium, and she, her education, her uh, university education was all in Belgium at the Free University of Brussels, where she majored in physics and then took a PhD in physics, uh, in theoretical physics, one should say, and there's a very fine line between mathematics and physics that can be crossed in both directions. Uh, she worked in, in uh, Belgium for a number of years, and then she came to uh, the AT&T laboratories here in New Jersey, in Murray Hill, and was a member of the technical staff there from 1987 to 1994, uh, at which time she moved and uh, became a professor at Rutgers University, just up the road. Um, then she joined the faculty here at Princeton in uh, 1993, and since 97, she's been the director of the program in applied math. Um, she's won numerous honors and awards. She's a member of the National Academy of Sciences. She's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She has been a, a MacArthur a fellow. Uh, she's won a couple of prizes from the American Math Society, uh, one of which is for exposition for her wonderful book about wavelets. And uh, it's a great pleasure to introduce her this evening to take us a little way on her journey surfing with wavelets. Ingrid Dobshi. Well, thank you very much, Phil, for uh, this introduction. I'd like to thank the organizers for asking me to give this lecture. Um, I'd like to tell you a story tonight of, uh, in which I hope to explain to the, the many of you who are not mathematicians why I care about this, why I and other people care about this. And I hope to tell you in this story surfing with wavelets. Uh, we'll surf over what they are, how people use them, why they use them, what we hope is still in, 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 in the future. And, uh, and I hope to tell you also a little bit about the people who were instrumental in this whole development. So what are wavelets? Wavelets are a mathematical tool a technique, and I'll explain what they, what they are tool or technique for, that really is the synthesis of ideas that come from many different directions. I mean, they're very old roots in uh, pure mathematics. There are ideas that come from, came together with them from physics. There are ideas that came from electrical engineering. And wavelets is really the synthesis. And I believe that in the synthesis, uh, something was developed that is more than the sum of its parts. So what are they a tool for? Well, they're a tool 
for time frequency analysis. So what does that mean? Well, you all are familiar with a much older tool for time frequency analysis. If you look at the music score, it tells you what notes and to play when. And the notes really have frequency information, and the when is time. So this is really a time frequency notation tool, I mean, which is much older than any of the other routes I talked about. Um, now, when, we, when, when physicists, when mathematicians, when mathematicians think of notes and frequency, well, here this is a physicist's point of view, uh, notes, different notes, these different heights of notes correspond to different frequencies. That is, if I had different tuning forks here, and sometimes I do this, I mean, I've given a lecture like this where I had tuning forks and a scope and so on, but now you'll just have to imagine them. If I had tuning forks and I had a mic and I linked them up with a scope, then you would see these very nice oscillatory patterns. And what would happen is that for different tuning forks, this is produces a note that's much lower than this one, you would see different patterns where the oscillations, where you have more or fewer oscillations. And here, I mean, this was just a hand drawing. Here is actually a more precise rendering of those oscillations you would see on the screen of the scope. And they tell you that you pack a number of oscillations in a certain time interval. And here I've shown 10 milliseconds, and then these four oscillations here make for 400 hertz. And if I pack twice as many, that makes me 800 hertz. And so tuning forks really produce these nice patterns on these scopes. Now, if, if all our music or all our sounds just cons uh, consisted of things that came out of tuning forks, it would be very boring. I don't know whether you've ever listened to tuning forks, but I mean, they're a very boring sound. And, uh, but in fact, what you can do is you can make much more interesting looking patterns and more interesting sounds by combining several. And so in fact, if I add these three kinds of, of oscillations, I will get this. And this will already sound like a more interesting sound if I listen to it. And then, of course, I mean, mathematically, what we're interested in is not just in building other interesting sounds, although, I mean, there are some people who work on applications of, of this type of analysis to, uh, uh, to, to music who are exactly doing that, who are trying to build by simple blocks interesting sounds, and so they're just interested in putting things together. What mathematicians also are interested in is if they're given something, if I'm given something like this, which clearly does not look as nicely oscillating as even this more complex thing that I just built here, can I build, can I write that as a sum of these regularly tuning fork-like pictures that I showed before, which we call sines and cosines? And in fact, you can. And let me show you how. In fact, if I combine four of these things that I was showing earlier, I can make something like the top. And with taking eight different such oscillations, I can make something that looks like this. With 16, it starts to look quite closely already to my original, 32. And then if I go even higher, here's what I get with 48 or a hundred different building blocks. So I add, I managed to make this with building blocks. And in fact, and this is, I promise, really the only type of, of formula I'm going to show 
We know how to do this. I mean, I'm not just taking it out of thin air. We have a recipe for doing this. I mean, I'm not going to explain this, but what we know is know exactly how much we should take. We have a recipe. If you give us a, a function, if you give us a, 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 a waveform, then we know, we, we, we crank our machinery and we say we take 0.2 of this and 0.3 of that and so on. We have really a recipe and we cook it together and we get what we want. So, that's in a nutshell, what is called Fourier analysis. And uh, I could paraphrase Julie Andrews, and I won't sing it, but uh, in a nutshell, Fourier analysis is when you know your science and cosines, you can graph most anything. Uh, but still, I promised you something, a time frequency tool, something that's like music notation. Uh, and I've covered here this idea of frequency. I've covered here how, by putting together different frequencies, I can mo make most anything. But there's not a notion of when to play these things, because I'm playing them for the moment all together. I mean, I'm putting this oscillation, and then this oscillation, and so on, all together. So it doesn't really look like this music score at all, in which I had one note to play now, and it dying out, and another play, note to play at some other time. And so, instead, I'll have to do something else if I want to have this idea of what notes to play when. And the solution to that is if you take your original signal, and this is not anymore a, a toy signal, a toy function, a toy waveform, uh, as I was showing earlier. This is something, this is actually a real signal. This is uh, 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 an example of a signal you would get from a, uh, an echo sonogram, from an, an echo back from the ocean floor. So if I have something like that, and I'd like to decompose it, and it's interesting, actually, you can already see with the naked eye that it will be interesting to decompose it and to have some notion of what happened where, because clearly something very different is happening here than here. So how are we going to tackle that? Well, in order to get the time information, we are going to cut it into pieces. So I'm going to first concentrate on this piece, and then on that piece, I use my sines and cosines. I use my recipe, and I have a decomposition in different frequencies. And then I'll do the same thing on another piece, and again, use this decomposition. And so after I've done that, which is called very appropriately the windowed Fourier transform, because I window first, I look through a window, and I do my Fourier transform, I look through another window, and so on, I have now really decomposed into little building blocks, which tell me, first of all, where I put my window, and then what different frequencies I looked at. And so schematically, I can represent that. I can represent the contrast with what I was doing earlier, like this. Earlier, my building blocks looked like these things. Oscillations, but they kept going forever. That's the Fourier transform. Now, my building blocks are nicely localized in time, so that's the when of the music score. And then I have the frequencies, which tell me how many oscillations per time unit I have in these different building blocks. OK, so this is actually a type of transform that was used a long time, uh, longer, uh, 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 a long time in many applications. And uh, it's, it's used, for instance, uh, uh, by, by uh, well, as I said, in many applications, but one application which is used is by geologists to order to, to uh, interpret 
uh, seismograms. You see, when you have a, a seismogram, one way of, of looking at, at what you get from a seismogram, if you want to explore, let's say, for oil prospection, the underground, is you, you on the surface, either with an explosion or with some kind of vibrator, you send sound down. And you have all these layers in the subsoil, and things will, be, will come reflected back. And depending on whether it reflects here or on a deeper layer, there will be some time lag on the different reflection. This reflection will get back sooner than this one. So you're interested when you look at, at what comes back in knowing and decomposing it in time. You want you know that you will find some echoes of the original signal, and you want to get timing information there to find the different 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 uh, the different echoes. On the other hand, you also want to know things about the layers they went through, and in the layers they went through. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, an interesting property, is that these different components in which I decompose, these slowly oscillating or more rapidly oscillating things, get affected in different ways. So if you first decompose into little components, and then uh, when, when you get it back, look at how these little components have been altered by the whole path, then that will tell you things about the kind of layers they went through. So at the, at when things come back, you're interested in looking at the different components and how they changed and looking at time information. So that's why you like this time frequency tool, because both will have this information. So Jean Morlet, who is a geophysicist in France who worked for Alpha Aquitaine, like many other geophysicists, was really very familiar with this tool. And he was not very happy with it. Now come back to that. So um, like many people who want uh, 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 to use this kind of decomposition, uh, he was using it for many reasons. Because if, if you use, if, if you have something very complex, like these seismographic data, and you want to understand them, then it often helps to decompose it in much simpler things. And you have the impression that the simpler things you will understand better. Uh, it's also used in, in uh, this kind of decomposition so it can also be used to compress. Because if, if you have something very complex that you don't understand, then you need all the details of it in order to render it. Because you don't understand, you don't see any structure in it. If you understand what's going on, then you can hope to describe it in much simpler terms. Well, if we can describe something in much simpler terms orally, then we can convey it easily to other people. Well, mathematically, if you can describe it in simpler terms, you will be able to register it with much less effort, and that means that you've compressed the data. Uh, you can, of course, then compute with it more easily. Instead of having these millions of, of data points, you have something much simpler, and you can compute. And you can manipulate. If you just don't want to compress, but you also want to take out some pieces or enhance some other pieces, you can do that. So for all these reasons, people like this type of transform. And the windowed Fourier transform, as I was showing you these building blocks, has, because all these building blocks are built by this windowing, has typically a certain window width, a certain resolution in time that it uses. And the same resolution in time is used for very high frequencies as for low frequencies. And that is why Jean Morlet was not happy with the windowed Fourier transform. And uh, he, it's, it's not a very good thing to, uh, to use when what's called transients are present. That's to say when you have something that has a very sudden uh, transition. And in fact, you could see that a little bit in the, the toy example I gave you. 
You see, if, if this, if, suppose now that I'm looking at the window Fourier transform and this is my window width. I showed you how to put this thing together with different components. And at some stage, you see, here at the bottom, I was doing pretty well everywhere except really near where I had very steep things. There things were not very well yet. That was because I was trying to mimic this very steep thing with something that was oscillating over the whole width. And that you have to work hard at because they have to work at getting the steepness here and conspire to not have steep things elsewhere. And in order to iron that out, I needed all the other components on top of that. And in fact, I only, I mean, I was doing so well with the first 32, but then I needed to go all the way to 100 in order to do well here. So that's a very mild transient. And in fact, in general, you can have much wilder transients than what I just showed. And so these windowed Fourier functions, which have a certain fixed width, are not good at that kind of, 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 of situation. So what happened is that in a completely ad hoc way, Jean Morlet came up with a different uh, idea. He said, well, let's take such a building block. It's a fine building block. Well, let's take this one, for instance. It's a fine building block. But in order to pack more oscillations in a unit time interval and make a narrower function, let's just take this function and compress it. I mean, and then I have a new building block, and it's much more narrow. It has high frequency. And I might hope that I will have a better time resolution. So that's what the wavelet transform is going to do. And I'm going to show you how it can work in practice. It's still going to decompose arbitrary things in elementary building blocks. And those building blocks still will have two labels. And these labels will still tell me when things are happening and what frequency. But what will happen is that the high frequency functions will be much more narrow than the low frequency functions. And I, I, I told you about uh, Jean Morlet's very ad hoc way of doing this. Uh, so I take, start with taking something that has some oscillations. And in order to generate things that live at different times, I'll move those around, just like my windowed Fourier functions were moved around. And I'll just squish them together to get high frequency, which packs that same number of oscillations in a smaller interval and move those around. And I'm now claiming that, again, I will be able to write arbitrary things as a sum of such wavelets. And I'll show you how you can do that. But so in this family of building blocks, labeled by position of scale, I have, again, as something that pinpoints in time, namely the position P in time, tells me when things are happening. And the scale, the scale which told me how wide or how narrow our things are, is correlated, of course, with frequency, because the thing has a certain number of oscillations. And if I go to very fine scale, I pack all these oscillations in a very time in, tiny time interval. So then it oscillates in that interval very fast. It's a high frequency function. Or if I expand it, it oscillates very fast. The same number of oscillations in a very wide interval, so it's very slow. So it's a very low frequency function. And so if, if, and I haven't shown you how yet, but if I decompose something into wavelets, I will have something that's, again, similar to a music score, in that I will have uh, uh, the different uh, wavelets will tell me with their frequency label and their time label when 
I have what type of frequencies. But I will have these high-frequency building blocks that are narrow in time and low-frequency building blocks that are much less so. Now, why is this something interesting? Because in practice, we have many types of signals where we, I showed you one, I'll show you more now, where we do want to have this kind of zooming in property. This, the fact that we, for high frequency, we want to want look very narrowly. We want to look with a narrower scale. We zoom in. It's like a microscope. I mean, if you want to look at coarse scale things, you have a wide field of vision. But with, with you want to, if you want to look at fine details, you look at a very small field of vision. So wavelengths sometimes are called mathematical microscopes for that reason. So here again is a component of uh, a sonogram. And again, you see that uh, you have regions where all of a sudden behavior is very different. Um, this is a different type of signal. And I'll come back to that later in, in the talk. This is really, I mean, you might, might not look like it, but this is one line out of an image. So just uh, a natural image. I mean, in this case, it's a portrait. And you put it on your computer screen. It has all these pixels. Let's think of it in black and white. It's all these little pixels, which have different values of gray. I mean, black is 0, white is 255, and you have all these integers in between. Um, and let's now take one line out of it. And as we run through the line, we make a little level here that tells us what, how white or how black the picture is. Here it's getting gradually lighter, suddenly darker, and so on. And this is an entirely nice image. I mean, I promise you, it looks, but it really looks like that when you look at it this way. And what you have is you have regions where nothing much is happening. This looks very smooth to the eye because these little oscillations in gray level is really things that you don't see. But then you have places where you have very sudden transitions. And of course, it's obvious. If you were to take a photograph of the front here, then what would happen is that you would have regions where things don't move a lot. And then you all of a sudden, you have an edge. And of course, this is just a screen. But if you were to take an, uh, a photograph of, of, of this desk or of anybody in, in the audience, you would have the same thing. You have sudden edges, sudden transitions. These are, again, transients. And I hope at the end of the talk, to come to much more complicated type of object. This is an example that is, this is one of the standards in computer graphics. It's called bunny. Um, so when you, when you want to, bunny is really completely known by giving a very fine triangulation. Bunny is known by something like 30,000 and something triangles. And uh, what you're interested in is again in having uh, a way of looking, of viewing bunny as something that gives you a coarse description and then fine detail. And the fine detail, the high frequency stuff, typically you will need to describe in a much more localized fashion than the coarse detail. I mean, it's like trying to make a painting. I mean, you, 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 you might use a, a broad brush for the coarse features, but then you will use fine brushes for the small detail. Okay, so I've, I've told you what wavelets are, and uh, I'd like to tell you now about how, because I haven't told you how we can decompose, and in fact, it turns out it's remarkably simple. I mean, I can show it to you with my bare hands. Unlike the Fourier transform for which I had to write this formula, I actually can show you with my bare hands how to decompose something in wavelets, and I'll do that. Well, with my bare transparencies. And... Uh, <laughs> 
And then uh, I'd like to tell you a little bit about why this is a mathematically interesting thing. Um, okay, so I'll focus on the why and the how. And why, well, many mathematical properties will be able, we will be able to read those off from the decomposition, and I'll come back to that. But I'm now going to just show you how I can decompose in a very simple and very fast way things with respect to this very special wavelet, which was really the oldest wavelet of all, which was discovered at the start of the century, but which, uh, uh, well, well, we'll come back to why it didn't have as widespread applications as some of the more recent wavelets uh, later. Let's first see how, so my claim is if I take this and it translates, and I also take little compressed versions of that and there translates, I can write anything you like as, a, as some of these. So let me show you how. So I'm going to illustrate that on this toy example. So I'm showing you here at the top. Well, you can view this as a waveform. I mean, but I can do the same thing on much more complex things. But I mean, what happens when you do computations in practice is that you're never really given something nice and continuous like that. I mean, you're given numbers, a whole lot of numbers. And I'm visualizing that here by just giving you successive blow-ups of this, so this little area blown up here, I blow up this top here, I blow up this top, and so on. And as I blow up more, you start seeing that it's really just uh, little points very close to each other instead of a continuous line. I mean, and if you want to compute, you have to work with discrete numbers. You cannot work. Uh, so I, I visualize that by saying that this is just something that has these little levels here. These are these represent the different numbers I'm giving, and. Then I'm going to show you manipulations I'm going to do with these numbers, and you really should imagine them happening over the whole picture. I'll just show you in the beginning what happens here. But of course, it's happening all over. I'm going to do something extremely simple. So remember that little thing at the center. Here it is again. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take here things in pairs, groups of two. And for every group of two, I compute the average of those two numbers that you've given me there. I mean, nothing can be simpler than that, just the average. And then, of course, this average, these average levels here do not give the same picture as the original. And as a result, I have, uh, I have in fact, a difference. There's a difference between what I had here and here. And the difference is, well, I was a little bit lower here. So let me write that as that little negative piece. I was a little higher here, so I have this little positive piece. And because this was just the average, of course, these two heights are exactly the same. So this looks exactly, well, it's except it's the minus part of it, but this looks exactly like one of these Haar functions except it's flipped, so it's negative, uh, it has a negative uh, uh, coefficient. And I mean, Remember, I'm living here at an extremely small scale. My original half function is, is, is this wide at this scale. So I have to squish it back to this, this, this width, and I put it there. And then I have another one. I mean, right next to it, I have here, again, these two are the same. So here, again, I have something where this height is the same as that, but not, of course, the same as what I had before. So I have another half function. So I've written the original thing as something that's a kind of coarser approximation uh, and 
some of these oscillating things. And now there's no reason why I would stop in my tracks. I mean, what I do now is on this one, which were all these average levels, I'm going to take them in pairs. And I'm going to compute their averages. And then I'm going to look at what I'm missing out when I go to these averages. And of course, for exactly the same reason, I will find things which have the same height here and here. But because I'm now looking at the scale that's twice as wide, the functions are twice as wide. So I had these very narrow hard functions before. Now I have things that are twice as wide. And of course, I can keep going. And what I will find is that I find these same building blocks over and over and over again, but at different scales. And I will eventually have written the whole thing as a sum of these little building blocks. This is to show you what happens at, on the full function. This was the original. This is after taking a number of these averaging steps, what I would have gotten. And of course, there's a difference between this and this. And this consists of really narrow functions and then things that are slightly wider and so on. After I do here, one step more of averaging, I get this. And the difference between them is given by this. And you clearly recognize that it's this, this little kind of cantilever structure. That, uh... OK, so I have, as I promised, decomposed the original thing into a sum of wavelengths. I mean, there was nothing more to that. Not only that, but I've done it in a very, very simple way. Because all I did was I took these numbers in pairs, and I computed their averages. And then I would compute the difference between those numbers and their averages. But that's really the same thing as computing differences between the numbers in the first place. So that's all I do. I compute averages and differences. And that was how I did it at one level. But then if you, I did it at several levels. What I would do is I would compute averages and differences. And the differences were what told me what wavelength I had to take. I had to take four here and three here and two and a half there and so on. So those numbers I was computing there. And then the averages was what I would use as my input for the next layer. So those I would then use in order to compute their averages and differences and so on. So that's what I'm really doing. I'm computing every time averages, differences, average differences, and so on. And these are the numbers I want. These tell me what wavelengths, how much of every wavelength I have to take. And these are auxiliary numbers that help me keep my algorithm going. And it's, it's fast. Well, if I start with 1,000 numbers here, then I have 500 pairs. For each pair, I compute one average, one difference. So I have to compute these two 500 averages and differences. These I keep. I'm happy with. These 500, I split in 250 pairs. For each pair, I compute an average and difference, and so on. I keep going. And if you add it all up, except, I mean, I very judiciously stopped when it became odd here. So uh, I mean, I can't divide by two. But that gives really a small boundary effect. It doesn't matter. Uh, morally speaking, I have a total number of computations if I keep going. That's, of the, of, that's like 2,000. And that's people, mathematicians and computer scientists call this a fast algorithm. Because if I had started here with a million, then the same argument would still have gone through. And I would have ended up with having done a total of 2 million computations. So the number of computations I do grows linearly with the number of data. And that's something we're happy with. Because uh, there are situations, many situations, in fact, where that's not true, 
where if you have 10 data points, we can do a computation in, let's say, 70. We can do a computer result in 70 computations. But if you give me 100, it becomes 7,000. I mean, 100 times bigger. I increase by 10, I get 100 times more. If I go to 1,000, it becomes 700,000. I mean, if I grow like that quadratically, then it becomes much harder to do big computations. And in practice, you always want to do big computations. You never start with 70. You start with a million points. And if the thing then grows like, like the, the square or the cube, you're in big trouble. So you really want these type of fast algorithms. And in fact, the Fourier transform itself was mathematically an extremely powerful thing and much loved by, by, by all mathematicians and not much applied by many people until people found a fast algorithm to compute with. And that made a big difference for applications of the Fourier transform, which, is, which is, has, has tremendous impact. Well, I showed you that I had a fast algorithm for decomposing. I also, of course, after I've decomposed, after I've given you all these numbers, I can also reconstruct fast. Because if I give you, if, 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 if of two unknown numbers, you know the average and the difference, then of course you can reconstruct the numbers. You just add them, the average and the difference, and you find one of them, and you subtract and you find the others. So the reconstruction has basically the same algorithm and is also fast. It's the same because before I was just adding two numbers and getting something or taking a difference and getting something. And I do the same here. I add and I difference. One problem with this is that this is not a very good way of it. Because remember, I mean, all my metaphors about why I wanted to use wavelets. I wanted to have this broad brush for the course features and then use my fine brush only where detail was needed. Okay, let's look at what I was doing. Here's my original. Here is, oh, well, not the original, but here's a, a fine approximation. Here is three averaging levels further, course approximation. Here are the three detail levels that I need to add in order to go from there to there with these three different wavelengths. Well, there's really not much fine detail for which I would have the impression I need a very fine brush going on there. If I had a smart mathematical tool, I should be able to do that in just a few broad strokes. Yet with the decomposition I've shown you, I need these very fine things here to go from there to there. So I'm decomposing it and I'm using the fine brush because it's a very bad brush all over the place. What's happening is that my broad brush was making lots of mistakes, and then I need my fine brush to compute to, to correct all those mistakes all over the place. So the hard way is not a very good way for us. And you can really trace that back to the algorithm. You see, if I have in my the thing I want to decompose, if I have a constant stretch, like here, more or less constant, then if I compute differences. I will find zeros, of course. And zeros tell me that I don't have these very fine scale things there, because those numbers gave me the fine scale things. But if I have something, I mean, here at the, near the edges, actually, you have probably a slowly increasing intensity of light. That is something that looks more like a steadily increase in numbers, something that is like in my previous uh, slide, something that's a nice increase here. And you view that as something that doesn't have much detail. 
Yet, with my differencing, with my stupid differencing, that of course captures a difference. It tells me that I'm going to need a little hardware to make up for all those differences. So, averaging, it really is the fault of the fact that what I was using to make coarser approximations was an averaging operation, and that's not a very good approximation. So, we have to generalize that. And this gives you one such generalization. If I've given you a whole lot of numbers, and I'm going to compute, I'm not going to compute just averages, I'm going to make a generalized average. Meaning, I compute the average of these two, but I'm going to compensate a little bit with the outliers. And if I'm going to compute a difference, then I'm going to also not just compute this difference, but compensate a little bit with the, 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 the four the, the outliers. Then, if you do this kind of differencing on something that increases linearly, well, clearly, if it increases linearly, if it were constant, I would get zero. But even if it increases linearly, if you check it out, you find that you get all zeros. So this is a kind of generalized differencing that will not feel constants, it also will not feel linears. So I could hope that it corresponds to a kind of decomposition, like the hard decomposition, but that is smarter. And in fact, it does, but you have to be, you have to work a little bit harder, and I'm not going to go take you through these details. This differencing scheme, the ones that I was using with the 3 8s, minus 3 8s, and so on, uh, will work, but then if, if I want to reconstruct, remember I had one way of decomposing and then a way of reconstructing, of going back. If when I reconstruct, I would like to use those same numbers. Before I had plus one, minus one, and I used the same numbers to go back. If I would like to do that here, I have to, I can't do that. I have to change to use others. So if you would like to always use the same numbers, because I mean, and that has lots of nice mathematical properties, then you have to change it a little bit. But you can find numbers instead of the three eights and minus three eights that will do the job. And your algorithm will look very similar to what it did in the hard case, which was this, remember, pairwise computing averages and differences, averages differences, except that I will have to use a few more. So I have generalized averages, which just use a little bit more of the parents, generalized differences. Okay. So it's still going to be fast because I'm computing just as many numbers at every layer as before. I have to work a little bit harder. Instead of 2,000, I will have to do 4,000 computations. But it's still linear. I mean, if I go, I will go from 1,000 to 4,000, from a million to 4 million. Okay. Now, it turns out, and that's a mathematical side of which, in which I won't go into any detail. But it turns out that when you do this, you are really decomposing into little building blocks, little wavelets, as I was describing earlier. The averages and differences corresponded in decomposing in that. If you use four of these, you're decomposing into these. You can decompose into smoother things, like the one at the bottom here, at the expense of having an algorithm that is slightly more complex. So. I can decompose into these things by a very, very simple algorithm. Okay, now that's how I do it. Now, why do I want to do it? 
Well, I want to do it because it makes a lot of sense mathematically. Uh, I will be, if I give you something like this, which looks like something that I might take from one of these lines of an image. It has smooth parts, it has sudden transitions, it has peaks, and so on. And I decompose into one of these fancy wavelets that I showed you. What will happen is that here, things are nice and smooth. And I will do very well with just a couple of coarse things. I mean, a wide scale and a slightly narrow scale, and I'm doing fine. But then, where I have these sudden transitions, I need to use the finer ones. And I can make that precise mathematically. But let me just show you on an example how that works. This is, again, a toy example. We'll see other examples on real images later. So at the top, I show you the, uh, the toy example. And I have decomposed, by means of an algorithm like the one I showed you, into these little wavelets. So this is at this scale. This is slightly finer, slightly finer, and so on. And here, what I show you is a different, this is like, in a sense, like the music score. It tells me when, what wavelet, how much I have to put of each wavelet. So here, I have to put a tiny little bit. Here, a little bit more. Here, in fact, nothing at all, and so on. And then at this scale, I have to put these, and so on. So this tells me what I have to do, at, uh, what building blocks I need to use at every scale. And see how interesting. I mean, here there's a sudden transition. And so you find that you do need them at fine scales. And I can go even finer. I mean, this is the next finer. See, I go even finer, finer, finer. I mean, it's almost hair thin here. And I keep using them under here. Same here. I keep using them. Here. It's clear that things are not quite as smooth as if nothing were happening, but it's not as bad as a sudden shear drop. And I do find that I need coefficients, but I don't need to go as long. Here, where nothing much is happening, I don't need anything at all beyond here, and so on. So this tells me that after I've decomposed into my wavelets, if I'm interested in looking at the original function and in seeing what eventful parts were, where something was happening, to identify places where interesting things were happening as compared to dull, smooth places. I only need to put myself in that place and look at the wavelet coefficients. And if I need them to very fine scales, I know that this is a place where something interesting was happening, where a thing was not, where it had a sheer drop or something. If they do, at fine scales, disappear completely in the background, if I don't need them at all, then I know that things were nice and smooth. So it tells me locally, I mean, it tells me spot by spot, I can tell from my decomposition what was happening. It tells me, and this is another thing and about which I just will kind of gloss, it tells me also things about global properties. Okay, now here I want to make a little aside to explain how this works. In very many applications, you want to know if you're given two things, how close they are. I mean, for instance, you have this beautiful physics theory. It predicts something. You do an experiment. You want to see how what you've measured 
is close to the original thing. So how do you do that? What you do is you take one of these, you copy it, you put it, you compare it with the other one, you look at the difference between the two, and if that difference is small, you will say that the two functions were close. Okay. Now, the interesting thing is that you will, in practice, need many different ways of assessing whether that difference is small or not. And let me give you two examples. It could be that when you see this, you know, well, the world, the, the world is not perfect. The response should really have been the smooth things, but there is some noise. I mean, occasionally you see little blips. But these are really tiny little blips. You really see the nice overall shape very well. And so in that setting, this difference is very small. You say, I'm very happy. Look how close to zero. You could imagine a completely different setting in which you do an experiment out of which you always get, even if nothing is there, this kind of response function. And it's really these blips that contain the information. Then you don't want to say this is small. You say, oh my, this is really interesting. You see, this is much steeper than that. And so you do have a different notion of how to measure that difference. So there are many different, and, and mathematicians call these different functional settings, functional spaces in which you're interested. And wavelets, it turns out, for many spaces that we like, are really useful because if we want to see how close F1 is to F2, all we need to do is to compute these wavelet coefficients and then look at the difference between the coefficients, just the absolute values of those numbers, and those will tell us all. And that's actually something very interesting. And uh, the fact that this is true has its roots in, 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 in very beautiful theorems in pure mathematics. I'll come back to that. Okay, so the result is that I've shown you that we can decompose functions in these different elementary building blocks, which I've called wavelets. I've shown you how I can compute those numbers. This, this symbol stands for sum. It means you, you, you have different things that look like that. I multiply them with coefficients, and then I look at different possible PNS. So I have this sum over these things. And after I've done that, it allows me to estimate how close things are to each other in a variety of different settings. It allows me to find the eventual parts of F, if something was happening at some point or not. And I can also use it to isolate the special parts. Because, I mean, if, I, if this tells me, look, at this particular point, really interesting things were happening, like in, in, in that, that uh, toy function I was showing earlier, then I could, here, uh, this is the reconstruction. Uh, yeah, so this actually is a reconstruction. This is the reconstruction of all these, these, these uh, different little pieces, and this is the very coarse approximation. What I could do is then say, well, I'm interested in what happens in this region. I only take those wavelets, which means I cut out all this, and what I will reconstruct is only this. Very simply. So I can cut out some pieces and reconstruct those. Of course, I don't want to just eyeball it. But OK, let me show you this example before I go to applications that expresses well the difference between the Fourier method 
and this wavelet method. If I take this, which has a very steep descent, and I know that Fourier methods have a hard time with that. So, I mean, I'm really priming things for my example. Um, then this is what you get after you use 64 Fourier coefficients, 64 of these different oscillations. This is if you, if you use 128. And you see, I mean, there's two things that's interesting. You have an overshoot near these, uh, uh, the, the singularity, but you also have ripples all over the place. And it's because it's so hard for these oscillating things to do the shear drop and conform elsewhere. Here is what I get with wavelets. And in fact, this already uses only 32 different wavelets, the bottom here. And so you see I'm doing a perfect dribble over here. No, none of these, these, these ripples. I do have an over and under shoot. That I cannot get away with. I mean, I won't go, I won't explain why. But elsewhere at least, I'm perfect. Okay. Now, I've sketched essential mathematical and algorithmic applications. Let me go to, 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 applica to, to applica uh, 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 aspects. Let me now go to applications. Well, my toy example, originally, when I put it on my computer, it had over 6,000 points. So again, this is not really a graph that I draw with a continuous line. These are little points next to each other, 6,000 of them. If I decompose into wavelets, and I retain only the 186 largest things, and I reconstruct, I get something that's indistinguishable. So this is what I claimed at the start, that if I decompose and I have a better understanding and I can describe in simpler terms, I will have compressed the data. Instead of using all these 6,000 numbers, I have only 186. Now you can say this is, of course, cheating because I can describe this in words much faster even than giving these 186 numbers. I can say, well, it was flat and then it went up and then it went down, and it was flat and then it went up with some wiggles and down again. I mean, so I mean, it's kind of cheating. So let me show you a better example. Oops, I have forgotten a transparency. So let me do this on a little corner here. Uh, I'm going to show to you how this works on real images. Now, remember, I was doing averages and differences before. Now, if I'm given an image, then I have something that works in 2D. So how am I going to do averages and differences? Well, I'm going to do it in first on the rows, and then on the columns. So that's to say, in every single row, I'm going to replace all the 256 numbers by 128 averages and 128 differences. But I have done nothing in the column direction. So I have now these rectangles. And then I'm going to do it in the other direction. So on each of these, I'm going to compute averages and differences. So on the first, I have, shoot, I have here, I compute these 256 things, I make averages. And I also have, I also do differences in that direction. And so I have these little squares. And then I do it here. I compute in this direction averages 
and differences. And you see I have now four little squares, and the way I will display this is that I will put them all together. I will smash them all together, and together they have the same area as the original. So let me show what that does on an image. I have this image. And I'm going to compute these averages and differences. And after I do that, this is what I get. So let me explain what I've done here. I've computed these averages differences in, 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 in all these directions. This is the result of averaging in both directions, so it's a coarse approximation. Here, the convention for displaying is, first of all, I have really heightened the, 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 the level. I mean, I've turned the little button to make things visible. Otherwise, you would have seen this mostly as blank. And what happens is that here, when things are white, the coefficient is almost is zero, almost zero. And it's only when they're very far from zero that you see something, a black line. So you see that I'm going to detect horizontal edges here because this is differencing in this direction. Vertical edges there and some additional stuff here in the corner. And if I do this even more, like before, what I would do is iterate the averaging procedure. Here I've done it three times, and this is what I get. Now, why does this tell me that I can compress? You see, here, after I've done this all, most of the area is white. So most of the area means that I have very small, and most of the area have very small numbers. I can throw those out, just like I did on my toy example. And I will be able to reconstruct, and I will get a reconstruction that's indistinguishable from what you saw earlier. And using far less fewer data. I mean, images typically take a lot of data. I mean, you have 256 by 256, you have eight bits for each, and you easily, I mean, you get megabytes. If you have a little video, it becomes bigger than that even. It's really important to compress those. And this is a way to do this. And I have, I mean, this is, this is just a, a little explanation here on this transparency. I have a couple of slides that show a real-life application of this. Uh, uh, let me first tell you what these slides, uh, uh, where these slides come from. Uh, I don't know. Seven or eight years ago, the FBI, uh, which has an enormous uh, catalog of fingerprint data, actually, they have hundreds of millions of fingerprints. And it's not just criminals. In fact, they have my 10 fingerprints twice because I became a permanent resident and I became a citizen, and both times you get fingerprinted. And in fact, when I did get fingerprinted, I mean, you have to go to the police stations to do that. And in order to get good fingerprints, they like you to be really relaxed because if you're tense, then the smudges and so on, and they have to do it over again. So they do a little bit of polite conversation when I do this. <laughs> and uh, so while we were doing this, I mean, he was rolling my fingers on this ink pad and says, so what do you do? And I couldn't resist. I said, I work on the mathematics that the FBI uses to compress fingerprint data. And, <laughs> and he said, oh, yes. And he didn't leave a word of it. <laughs> and so, but it's really true. And uh, so they, uh, they wanted to compress, they wanted to digitize these data and compress, because with the amount of data they had, I mean, this was all in filing cabinets, and it was just acres of filing cabinets, I mean, that bad. So they wanted to, 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 to digitize and compress, and they had, I mean, they were in a situation where they didn't have a functional norm like I was talking about earlier, a functional setting to say how close things are. They were very pragmatic. They said, we have these very fancy algorithms, these very fancy machines that automatically compare fingerprints to each other and tell us these probably are very close or these are different. 
So it's a very pragmatic thing. They said, whatever algorithm you come up with, it must be something that after we, compress, we, we reconstruct from your compressed data and we feed this reconstructed fingerprint and the original in our machine, it tells us with very high uh, reliability these are the same or if not, these are not the same. So, so that was their, 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 uh, their way of estimating how good an algorithm was. And they, they had a competition in the whole country. Also, they wanted an algorithm that was easy to implement because they wanted it then to be built into a gadget that every precinct, even the poorest precinct, would be able to afford. They were not interested in getting only fingerprints from very wealthy precincts. <laughs> so, uh, they, <laughs> they, uh, so they did this competition, and what came out of as a winner was this uh, the the, the uh, a wavelet algorithm, which I, uh, of which I have a slide. So, can I have the first slide, please? So, this is a fingerprint. This is an original. And uh, in the next slide, please, you'll see the reconstructed fingerprint after a compression factor of about 20. You'll say, oh, wow. It looks the same, doesn't it? Well, of course, it does, but it's not really fair because these machines look much more closely than that. So let's look at the blow-up. Can I have the next slide, please? Blow up, next slide, is an original, is a, okay, so can we go to the previous slide? <laughs> the blow up here is an original fingerprint, uh, and it's, it's blown up so much that you start seeing the individual pixels, you see the little squares. And uh, it shows that in the fingerprint, not only are we interested in the ridges, all these lines, but also there are little white spots, which are sweat pores on the ridges. And the location of these sweat pores, turns out, is very interesting, in, very, very important for those machines that do automatic recognition. So it is a case where we want coarse features as well as very fine features. Let's now go to the next slide, please. So this is the reconstruction with a compression factor of slightly over 20 with a wavelet algorithm. And what you see, of course, it's now not perfect. I've blown it up so much that you can see it's not a perfect reconstruction. And, well, we've lost some information. We have only 5% of the original data size. So, yet you see that you still see where the original sweat pores are. Things are much lighter. And so, in fact, these machines for recognition could use this with very high reliability. We have another one on the next slide. Again, an original. And here you see that also you have, uh, uh, you have these, these, these little islands between lines which are very important and the reconstruction on the next slide uh, shows again it's not perfect but the location of those islands is still there um, on, on, uh, on this web page by Chris Brislon who actually is the person from whom I got these slides and who built, worked on this, on, on, on this standard, you can find much more information. And it actually also shows a comparison of how the prevalent image compression scheme would have done on those fingerprints. And it's really a very dramatic difference. Um, I am really out of time, but I'd like to show you one example which I really like. Because, see, in what I've been showing you so far, I've shown you how this algorithm can compress. And what I was doing was doing these generalized averages and generalized differences. And that algorithm with these generalized averages and generalized differences is really something that electrical engineers 
new independently of wavelets, which is called subband filtering. And the advent of wavelets has led to the design of slightly different schemes, slightly different numbers to put in to do those generalized averages and differencing. And in fact, those slightly different ones are indeed used in practice, like in the FBI, and they will be used in the next generation of image compression that will be commercially available. But uh, the algorithm is really the same as the algorithm that the engineers knew. So it's not really fair to say, look, this is what mathematicians did. Um, this is an application in which really the fast algorithm and the mathematical insight came together. Uh, here you have the original image. This is a very coarse approximation. And this, what, what is done here, this was work by Stefan Mala. What he did is he put himself in every point in the image and he looked through scale. And he looked at the numbers at wide scale, at finer scales, finer, finer, finer. And he looked at places, he was curious to find places where these numbers would not go down. Remember when in the early example, the toy example, we had cases where we needed all those numbers to find scale because there was a sudden transition. So he looks for points that are like that. So that identifies all these white points here or points when, when he looked through scale, he needed them at coarse as well as fine scales. So those identify edges. And then he threw away all the other information, everything. Just kept at those white points, he kept all those numbers, he threw away all the others, and he had a way of reconstructing and getting to this. Now, the compression factor, I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's much higher than what I had with the fingerprints. But you've lost much more. I mean, you see, you've lost, you had all this texture in this original picture, it's gone. And in fact, we sometimes call this laughingly, uh, jokingly, the Warhol transform, because it looks like a kind of pop art image of the original. Uh, but all the edges are still there, it's still sharp. You recognize the thing. I mean, there's no blurring that has happened. And this is really, it's, it's still on images. And the computations that have been done are things that come from the algorithms of the electrical engineers. But the reason for doing them, I mean, this is not something you would ever have dreamt of doing if you just thought of it of this, this generalized average and differencing. It really comes from this mathematical understanding of what wavelengths buy you in the fact that they identify special places like that. And that's something that comes from the mathematical side that would not have come otherwise. Okay, well, I've gone much longer than I expected, but let me finish, I mean, let me skip all this and finish with just little human story of how did this synthesis happen. I was talking earlier about Jean Morlet and how he came up with this very ad hoc scheme and he had no idea of all the mathematics. Not sure that he does at this moment either. But uh, what he had was a scheme, he made it work. And he was very excited and he would tell his geophysics friends about it. And they were very skeptical. I said, this looks like a mathematical idea and if it were true, it would be in the books, and it isn't, and so it can't be true. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, they were completely wrong. It was in the books, but in completely different books than the ones they knew. But uh, he met through a common friend, Alex Grossman, who's a theoretical physicist, and who recognized some ideas that he had been using in theoretical physics too, where again, this idea of wanting to localize in both time and frequency comes up except that it's position and momentum. But let me not go into these details. Alex Grossman, I mean, I, to this day, I don't understand because Jean Morlet just arrived not with 
mathematical formulas just with a sheaf of computations. I mean, output listings. And uh, I mean, this was the day that when you were in the middle computation, it still came out, you know, in these zigzag sheets out of a computer. So under his arm. And Alex Rosman understood what was going on, and they built a mathematical framework to understand. And so this was very exciting. And then, completely by accident, Yves Meyer, who is a very uh, a distinguished harmonic analyst, heard about this. And the way they heard about this, Yves Meyer was then at Ecole Polytechnique in France, which had few Xerox machines for which people had to stand in line. And he was standing in line behind a theoretical physicist who said, look, I mean, you should look at this paper and so on. And so in this line, while they advanced, they talk about it. And Yves Meyer's reaction was, but we knew how to do this all along. Because in harmonic analysis, people actually had been using ideas of scaling like that for a long time. And then to his great merit, and in fact, this is the story of this whole area, and it's one reason why I like it very much. He did not have stop at this very human reaction of, poof, we knew this all along. He looked a bit closer and said, but you know, I mean, it's looked at in a different way here. And that led to him starting to work on these things, and that led to new constructions, which were triggered by this contact. Um, I came in through Alex Grossman because I had worked with him a long time before that on my PhD thesis and we'd kept in contact. And so I, I learned about harmonic analysis and that was the synthesis that happens, another synthesis with physics. Stefan Malach, whose name I mentioned, is a, uh, 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 an interesting applied mathematician who was working in the field of vision at the University of Pennsylvania. He had gone to school in France, but he was doing his PhD at UPenn. And because he was friends with a student of Meyer, some one day on vacation, they met and they talked about, about this, about this, this wavelet basis that Meyer had constructed. And he got very excited because Meyer had a construction of a wavelet basis which is very different from the, I mean, from the one I showed you and also the understanding of it was different. Uh, the idea of, of going from level to level and putting in more detail was not really as clear there. But Malas saw that in vision, this idea of having a broad description and then putting finer and finer detail is something that people use all the time. It's one, it's part of the paradigm of, of the field. So Malas said, maybe I can interpret it that way. And he uh, got very excited. He heard that Yves was going to give lectures in Chicago. He actually, from his own pocket, bought a, a cheap plane ticket. And uh, they uh, very appropriately, Yves tells me, spent three days working in Zygmunt's office and came out with a very beautiful construction and interpretation of all these wavelet bases. So that was actually a, uh, a, a, a coming together of vision. And then also very soon after, uh, uh, Malar realized that these electrical engineering algorithms were sitting in there. And uh, then I was, I, was, I was fortunate enough to realize that by taking these algorithms extremely seriously, and going back from the algorithm to the functions instead of the other way, what had been done before, you could build especially interesting bases, which I've shown you and which, have, which are now being used uh, widely. But then many other things came in as well. I mean, in fact, there was another link, but which I have no time to talk, with computer-aided graphic design. I mean, some of those algorithms had links there. And so there's a very interesting development in uh, computer graphics now that uses all these multi-resolution things and that has bunny in it and I have no time to talk about that. But so uh, I think this is an example of, of, of ideas from many different fields coming together and of having the very fortunate circumstance that when people uh, came across 
I mean, at several instances, people came across things that they knew under a different form, and they did not just have the reaction, poof, we knew that. I mean, they had that first reaction, that's human. But then they looked more closely, and they realized, yes, there was something interesting. And so I've been very, very uh, uh, happy to have been part of this. And thank you very much. Thanks for a wonderful lecture. I think we can take maybe five minutes if there are any questions. Here you go. Wait, 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 wait. wait. The, the, the web address. So while the web address is going up, uh, Simon, you have a question? Ingrid, you um, told us a great deal about how to decompose uh, signals and uh, patterns into wavelets. Could you say a bit more about how one settles on what the optimal set of wavelets to use is for a given application? Okay, well, um, that's not really my favorite question because the <laughs> no, no, because uh, there is no magic bullet. There is no optimal wavelet. What happens is that you have to uh, really use, but that's the right, the right, I mean, that's also the, uh, interesting because that shows that it's not just all baloney. If I was telling you this was magic, I had a magic bullet, then you would know I was saying nonsense. Uh, what you have to do is you have to uh, uh, try to, to, to uh, use the information you have about your problem in selecting what kind of wavelet, and even selecting what kind of wavelet transform to use, because I have talked only about bases, but there are other transforms that are better adapted to identifying patterns, for instance, or denoising. But so what, what is interesting, what, what you have to, to, to uh, see is how much computation you're willing to spend and also how much smoothness you expect there to be in part of your data. If, 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 if your data are going to be very fragmented all over and you don't expect nice smooth parts, then you're not going to gain very much by going to these nice wavelets except of heart. Can you imagine yeah. this process being automated with the genetic algorithm that would select on the wavelets? Okay. Uh, yes. In fact, uh, there are even algorithms that exist now that do that. What they do is they select not only on the wavelets, they also select on some other criteria that, that because, I mean, there are variants to what I've explained that I didn't go into. But so they, 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 they view it as having a whole library of different possible ways in which we decompose. And you have fast algorithms in all of them, so you can actually do that. And then you have an automated way, automated way to uh, decide which ones are best. And so you prune your way through this, this whole ID, this whole, this whole collection to find the best possible base, the best possible algorithm. Yes, you can do that. Okay, so the question was, is this form of compression useful for HGTV where they have a lot of compression? Uh, in, when, when HGTV standard was being worked on, in fact, one of the proposals was one that used this type of compression. I believe that the final one which was selected is not. However, as I said, the next generation of image compression and probably video compression as well, uh, JPEG 2000, had in its criteria uh, 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 um, 
a condition that they call progressive transmission, which means that as you get in more information, you're going to build a better and better uh, 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 impression of the information you're transmitting, which is not possible with the standard JPEG algorithm now. So, in fact, the, uh, the, 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 the algorithm on which they're zooming in is now a wavelet transform with a, a family of wavelets I constructed. Questions? Well, no more questions. So, many thanks once more.